Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. And for this episode, I'm joined by designer, milliner, and local craft activist, Gigi Burris. Gigi, thank you for joining us today. Doug, thank you so much for having me. I have um, hopes that you would ask me on this podcast. Um, so this is a real treat to be able to, to sit down with you today. Of course, of course. Well, let's start with early days uh, in terms of your education. You are a proud Parsons alumni. And uh, I wonder, you know, um, with hat making, is um, what what is the coursework at Parsons or any other design school, and and how early do you need to make that decision that you are going to focus on that accessory? So you know, I attended Parsons School of Design, the new school, and when I went, it, uh, the location was still in Midtown in the Garment Center. So I loved being able to pop into the shops um, in between classes, and you know, much has changed. They've moved the location away from the garment center and now it's much more niche. But when I was there, pretty much if you wanted to study fashion, you were there to study ready to wear. And the coursework was primarily focused on ready to wear. And it was my junior year that I was accepted into the study abroad program at Parsons Paris that I really fell in love with the curriculum that they were teaching, which was much more hands-on craft, um, really old world sort of methodology. And we learned about textile development and treatments and working with our hands. And so when I came back um, later that junior year, because I went for one term, I took a millinery course at Parsons. And it was the first millinery course that Parsons had offered while I had been there. And um, there wasn't a lot of interest in the class. Um, and I believe that you had to have five students to, you know, make up a class that they felt, you know, they wouldn't cancel. They felt like there was enough interest in. So I asked a friend, I said, please, will you take this class with me? And he took the class with me and we were very that, intimate. That curriculum quorum, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and it was a, an intimate environment. And I went on to apprentice and sort of intern for that teacher. Well, so shortly after graduation, um, and I think after either interning or working with that same professor, you launched your line, you launched your eponymous brand, you launched your business. And um, I wonder, just back to the educational aspect of things, um, how prepared for that were you? Were there courses at Parsons that prepared you to be an entrepreneur and small business owner, or were there not? Luckily, there were not because I feel like if there had been, I wouldn't be here today um, because there's just so much I think that you need to learn, um, particularly being a New York based business, as you know, um, there's some more legalities to actually becoming a real business. And so um, I actually took a course at FIT. Um, yeah, a business oriented course. at FIT. Yes. Mm hmm. That's yeah. great to hear. Right. Yes. So, you know, after receiving a BFA from Parsons and, you know, working freelance for several years on, you know, just hustling and trying to do this on the side, when I decided to become a full-time brand, I had a showroom in Europe that would sort of wholesale the collection. So 
they took care of that business side of it. And then I really wanted to learn how to become an actual business. And so there was a course after, after work at FIT that I took that really spoke about, you know, the foundations of building a brand and, and building a business. Well, important components. I mean, ones that, that don't always find their way into the design curriculum. Uh, don't always find their way into the MBA curriculum, you know, meaning a, a design and brand driven business, you know, ha having an MBA myself, there weren't a lot of courses geared towards that either. Um, but in terms of the, the, the real raw elements of getting the hats out there um, and other accessories, I don't want to limit you to hats by any stretch of the imagination, um, but what is your production methodology? So, you know, in terms of getting the hats from like an idea to my, um, onto the shelves at Neiman Marcus, um, it's actually a pretty short path. So that what, you know, a couple things really, um, you know, I've been very blessed. Um, and one of, one of the few, one of the many things that has allowed me to become a, a a real business is that this is a niche market. We don't have a lot of competition, both in the production and in the sort of like shelf space. Okay. So, you know, there are very few places to actually manufacture hats, very few people that manufacture hats. And I'm very blessed that I'm able to partner with one of the few manufacturers that is left in the country. And so we have a very short path of from idea to to the shelf, and so um, we work to you know sort of work with carpenters to carve blocks in the shape of the hats that we want for each season. We'll repeat shapes. We'll use vintage blocks. And for those that don't know the production methodology of hats, there ours are made the old-fashioned way, which is the centuries-old technique of blocking by hand. So this is the same way it's been done for hundreds of years, steam, rope, and carved wood. So um, I guess the biggest investment from idea to production would be carving the wood, but we don't necessarily do that every season. Maybe we introduce one new shape a season. Um, and then it's all done here in New York City, which is really important to me. Um, but it also was important to me as a young business owner because local production lowered the barrier for entry for a small brand. I could start, you know, making 10 hats, two hats, you know, and now we're doing much more volume than that. But um, that sort of local production really allowed me to grow as a business in an organic and sustainable way. Well, that leads so nicely to, to what my next question should be, because you and I, full disclosure, um, are on the founding board of, of Closely Crafted, really your brainchild. Um, and, and you are our, our, our wonderful chairperson. Um, but let's talk about local production and maybe the best way to get into that conversation is what is Closely Crafted, a, a new 501c3 nonprofit? Uh, what is its mission? Well, I would just like to quickly shout you down, Doug, because you were one of the first people I emailed with this idea and you were so, your dedication to quality and small business, you know, you were right there with me in building this special, special, um, you know, project that we're excited to, to announce into the world. And so, 
It's a nonprofit dedicated to preserving and sustaining American craft. And, you know, it's one thing to be an American designer. It's one thing to be an American brand. It's a very different thing to be an American brand that makes an America. As a consumer, people have the choice of where their food comes from and where their, you know, purchases come from. And it should be the same in luxury fashion where they're sowing seeds into people here. In, in America, continuing tradition, continue, continuing legacy of creation here. And so what Closely Crafted really aims to do is excite and educate consumers about locally crafted goods and then to support that excitement with industry conversations and apprenticeship programs that really capture this sort of gap in workforce training, where we have people that are in their 60s and 70s that are about to exit the workforce. And what we really wanna do is take their decades of expertise and apply that and share that with those who are seeking employment you know, in a creative field that this, you know, convince them this is a cool and viable industry and also give them you know, some really special skills to keep this legacy alive. Well, and you, you mentioned the benefit to your own brand. Um, a benefit that, that really all startup brands would share, that of not having to have, and I pardon the interruption of the sweet summer rain as we're in midsummer, we've got one of those days where, where it's actually pouring outside uh, here in New York, but um, the, the benefit of being able to do small orders um, and not have these gargantuan orders that, that candidly also lead to a lot of wastefulness in the industry. So, so pivoting a little bit, you know, I know closely crafted is about craft, but some of the ancillary benefits to the industry as a whole, the fashion industry, which is a relatively dirty and rough business when it comes to labor practices, as well as just environmental impact. That's all well documented, and I won't I won't belabor the point on that to give people facts, which you can listen to any of the other podcasts to go through a lot of the numbers. But um, how does how does local production help alleviate those two pain points? Well, I think it really addresses both of them pretty head on. So one is just production agility. So instead of having to commit to 50 hats of every color and every size, I can do three to five. And then when I see, okay, everyone's obsessed with winter white, you know, in November, I have to make more winter white. I'm right there fulfilling, not quite as an on as ordered basis, but nearly. So our production is um, really focused on inventory mitigation and making sure that we don't overproduce. So at the end of the season, we're not on sale. We're not trying to offload, you know, products that just were amiss for some reason. Maybe we misjudged a trend or maybe, you know, the weather was in such a way that it got you know, warm too early or whatever. So foremost inventory mitigation, then you're not overproducing and then carbon footprint. You have production agility that <clears throat> one, you can react fast, but also you can react without having two factor in freight, freight costs, freight time and the carbon footprint of moving product around. With that being said, I think we're far past the point, unfortunately, um, in America, but we it is still a viable part of the conversation that goods 
and production are being made here in America. A lot of times locally made is still of imported goods, um, but at least the carbon footprint is only on the goods as opposed to shipping goods from Italy to China, then back to Italy and then back to the United States. So the carbon footprint is, is significantly lowered when your production is local. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and on the more labor facing and regulatory side, um, at least with production in the US, it's easier for you to put boots on the ground and, and see the conditions that labor is operating under. And candidly, with no disrespect meant to other nations that produce, but the laws in the US are, are labor friendly as, as they should be and protect workers in ways that say the laws in Bangladesh don't. Um, not, not to mention how difficult it would be to go and check on your workers or the workers that are doing your work if you happen to be producing, you know, so far afield. Um, well, how, you know, your business, and, and given that you, you are an advocate of local production and the businesses as well, have you as a business, putting the nonprofit aside, which is obviously a separate legal entity, has your business considered B Corp certification? So, you know, millinery, like I said, is a very niche industry, which has really allowed me to have, you know, maybe not the loudest voice, but a pretty loud voice in my field, which I feel very grateful for. Um, but it is very niche. And so I think that sometimes with certifications, there has to be precedent in materials and we use such specific materials to the to the millen industry, millinery industry, that and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding there has to be like some certain certifications in place. And our material is just so niche that no one has invested in a sort of grading system for eco consciousness. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, some industry associations have some of them are aligned with the cotton industry, some of them are aligned with wool. It's very difficult in this age of greenwashing to know that the little certification standard and the, 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 the green, literally the green you know, label that it's put on actually means anything, um, which is, is a bit of a conundrum to consumers, right? I, I think a lot of consumers want to know, and I do think we are seeing movements you know, the, the, the Threat Act, um, you know, activity in California on regulating the industry. The, the common outcry is that will simply make US brands cost more, um, which, which does kind of lead to another element of at least ecological sustainability, but labor practices are the same. You know, a lot of consumers may bemoan the fact that they are made to feel bad if they're buying fast fashion because they're being ecologically and socially irresponsible. Um, how do you respond to those claims? You know, I think that luxury is not democratic. Um, when you buy, a, a, from just the easiest example is a hat for me, you're buying people's time, you're buying quality materials, but I mean, it's expensive. Um, and so I would never, want to shame anyone that they didn't have the means or, you know, weren't in a certain class of, of financial 
um, you know, stability that they couldn't purchase this. And then, you know, maybe fast fashion is all they can afford. Um, what we would want to do is instead of shaming anyone, I think it's all about flipping the script and saying, hey, when you buy one hat that's such a beautiful quality piece or one beautiful, beautifully tailored jacket, over time, you will get so much more value of that piece because it will last longer and it will wear better than you buying 10 fast fashion pieces. And that's where I think places like the Real Real and Bestier Collective can really, you know, Dora Mar, they can really allow a lot, um, democratize sometimes this more like luxury fashion space through reselling. Um, because, you know, I think that fast fashion, while it is about overconsumption, a lot of times that's what people are able to, to spend. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, a common complaint that, uh, that I hear, you know, what one other solution uh, you, you've been generous with, with one of my other nonprofit um, organizations, Goodwill to, to, to help donate in terms of up, upcycled uh, garments. And, and certainly the secondhand economy of garments is, is another way to gain um, quality possibly you know, at an affordable price point, but, um, but you're right. It's, it's about what is a fundamental right of the consumer and, 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 um, you know, perhaps changing a mindset. So the CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, um, we both have many friends there, um, you know, a beloved organization comprised of, of the design community. Um, what role do you think they have in this conversation about craft and local production? You know, I um, have been very blessed to be a CFTA member now for five years. And so I was, you know, part of the, for those that wouldn't know in the audience, I was part of the Vogue Fashion Fund, the CFTA Vogue Fashion Fund um, early on in the brand. And it really changed the whole trajectory of, of my business and allowed me to, you know, interact with people like Anna Wintour and, um, you know, Ken Downing, who put us in Neiman Marcus. And so, you know, I have such a heart for the CFDA. And Cal um, McNeil over there is, has, has such a heart for local production. And so I do believe that they're trying to expand the conversation um, outside of New York City. And, you know, where we really hope to partner with the CFTA is they have a banging production directory. It's such a great resource for those that are looking to expand into local production. They've really done an excellent job in curating it with the, so that people can understand capabilities and minimums. But, you know, the CFDA is a very large organization now, I believe over 500 designers that they represent. And so a small portion of those designers are actually crafting here in America. So, you know, the CFDA has a lot of designers to rep represent, a, you know, a good portion of those designers do produce overseas. So they are, you know, tackling issues like tariffs and freight and backup and, you know, what we really aim to do is have a hyper curated conversation about local production so that, you know, it just shines, a, I think, like a brighter spotlight on that issue, which I know is very close to the CFTA and we hope to work closely with them. But, you know, they have a lot um, to do. And so we're hoping to sort of magnify this particular cause while working alongside them. 
Yeah, it undoubtedly is a challenge when you know you have such a breadth. The, fa the fashion industry in the United States is is massive as it is globally, and so you have interests that you are representing, um, not all aligned on this particular issue, uh, for sure. Uh, well, let's talk about the fashion industry. I mean, so many consider it to be so glamorous, uh, and often it is. But um, what, what are some of your more surreal and perhaps unglamorous uh, moments? Uh, and, and what are some of your daily frustrations as you approach uh, your brand and design? Wow. Well, I guess I would lead you with the glamorous moments that we had a really um, special opportunity within the past year to dress Dr. Biden for, to meet the Pope in um, in at the Vatican, which was so special. And it we had about a week to do it, which is a long lead time for those that don't um, realize that fashion is is glamorous as it may be is always very last minute. So I'm, I'm just trying to think of how you compete with the Pope hat. <laughs> that is um, massive. And I guess, you know, for centuries, majestic, right? Well, and so many head coverings have religious purposes. So what we made for her is called a mantilla. And it is traditional to wear, you know, and to cover your head. And like multiple first ladies, any first lady that has met the Pope wears a version of this. And so we had a week to make it. And Anna from my team was like running to the train station to deliver it, to go down to DC. And so I guess um, while you guys as an audience see these amazing glamorous moments, what's going on behind the scenes is very rushed. And local production really does help me in the sense that I can facilitate things quickly. And I think what is a um, particular frustration for, for us as a brand is we're often the last thing someone thinks of. Someone's fully dressed, they have their sponsored jewels, they're ready to go. And they're like, should we add a, like a head covering? Should we add like a headband or a hat or a veil? And it'll be the night before the Met Gala and we're running it up to the hotel you know, at six o'clock at night. Or it will be the last thing that they take off. Like, oh, we really want a veil. It's going to be so great. Let's like totally make this top hat. Or, and then they'll be like, mm, it's too much. I think let's take it off. So hair accessories and hats, I think, are one of those things that just are very last minute. And you never really know if like your grand red carpet moment that you've prepared for is going to happen. I never do. <laughs> um, well, let's talk. Um, you know, headwear and style. Um, let's let's start generally, and then I do want to I do want to focus on on men because I think that perhaps is more of a challenge. Um, you know, there is obvious functionality in in most uh, most headwear, the hat in particular. But how how can hats enhance personal style? You know, I think that hats are so memorable. They really define. An outfit. I mean, you can truly like make a regular, simple ensemble of statement making look if you just simply add a hat, the right hat. And, you know, for us, we really work with women and men and, and people of all, um, 
you know, genders and ages and shapes. And they come into our studio and we work with them to make sure that whatever they leave with, they feel confident. And confidence and style and hat wearing really just go hand in hand. That if you don't feel confident in your hat, it will wear you. But if you feel confident in your hat, you know, it will really give you the presence to sort of command a room. Yeah, I think that's the issue for men. Um, you know, what, what would you say? How would you couch that to the man who, look, most American men, they have an obsession with the baseball cap, right? Which is, to me, infantilizing. I wear a baseball cap when I'm playing catch or, you know, when I'm driving my truck or whatever. But, you know, it's got a limited purpose for me. But I think most American men, that is their go-to. If they consider hat wearing, that's what they wear. So how do you get that guy to wear the fedora? I need to see you in a baseball hat, Doug. <laughs> I don't know that I would recognize you. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, I love it. I played baseball in college. Like, I love baseball. But I'm not the guy who, you know, I mean, I, you find American men wearing baseball caps inside. Yeah. You find American men wearing baseball caps backwards, you know, taking any functionality that it has and just, just, I mean, unless you're avoiding burning the back of your neck to burn your face. I mean, so how do you get those men? Is it through a functionality argument and or style argument that you get them to see beyond that as the sole headpiece, headgear? Well, I think that as a broad audience, um, people across all genders have naturally gravitated towards more of a casual vibe. So, you know, even outside of the headwear space, you don't have people wearing tailoring, people wearing dresses, you have a much more relaxed look. And so with that, it's very akin to something like a baseball hat, something like a beanie. And so where we have really found success with men is a hat that sort of resembles beanie vocabulary. And it's a brimless hat with a cuff and it has like a sort of pinched crown, which is actually a fedora crown, but the whole vibe has these beanie vibes. And Mahershala Ali wore it to the Oscars he wore it on the cover of the Hollywood Reporter and then like rappers like Skepta and Black Thought started wearing this hat. And we have had a real sort of, um, you know, kind of fire building around this hat. It's called the Sharina. We have a dedicated area to it on our website because I think it's not a crazy diversion from this casual vocabulary of a beanie. Um, so that's where we've really been able to speak to a broader audience than maybe some of the, you know, women who are wearing a brimmed hat is this hat called the Sharina. Well, and so for our listeners who aren't watching and haven't seen the images we've been able to throw up, when you say beanie, what do you mean? Can you describe it? So it's not a brimmed hat. It has a cuff, about a two inch cuff that sort of looks like a rolled beanie. And then the top has a pinch. It's about, it's a tapered top and it has a pinch. So it almost looks like a beanie that when people make their beanies like stand up with a bit of stiffness, mm -hmm. not like a scully beanie, but like a beanie with volume. And does it come from any particular, I mean, I, I believe I've seen that hat in certain countries. Does it come yep. from any particular background? You know, uh, there's so many different cultures that have a hat similar to that. 
And so I also think there's some familiarity with that vocabulary. We, our intention was more of a beanie, but you know, I think that sometimes when people are fearful of a brimmed fedora, which can be quite specific and really flattering for the right person, there's more of a neutrality with something like that. Got it. Now we've been through a couple of years of the pandemic and many people are, are still partially going into offices or not, and many people are working from home. Have you seen a commercial um, transition with respect to hats? I mean, obviously you're not wearing hats usually in the office, but you're wearing them perhaps to the office in your travel time. Um, have sales gone up? Have sales gone down? Are they neutral? And, and what do you see for the future? So, you know, while the pandemic was very difficult for us, um, you know, particularly with some of our retail partners, um, what was great is everyone was outside. And so they needed hats because they were all having like full on outdoor activities was the social norm. Lunch was outside, dinners were outside, everything was outside. So we saw quite a, a peak in straw. And I think there's been a loyalty from those people that maybe wouldn't have invested in a hat, but they were spending so much time outside to protect their face or, you know, um, summer hats, straw hats. They really do have a setting outside. So it's been great. I mean, that I think that is a trend that's continued. A lot of outdoor activities, um, you know, outdoor wedding sort of focused occasions. So that's been awesome. I think where we took the heaviest hit was occasion wear. I mean, we had developed quite a bit of party sort of New Year's Eve veilings, you know, leading up um, to last holiday season and Omicron sort of flattened anybody's Christmas plans. Right. Right. So the pandemic absolutely has little microcurrents um, within my niche industry. Um, but overall, I think that people have made a decision to invest in, in small businesses and invest in stories and invest in women, um, women-owned businesses, small, small businesses. And so that's been, that's been a good trend for us across the board throughout the pandemic. Well, and what is your ruling on hats indoors? When is it appropriate to wear the hat indoors? When should it be taken off? And, and does that modulate depending upon the hat? Well, I think it really just depends on how good your hair looks underneath. <laughs> because when I have a hat on, it's there's a reason because whatever's going on underneath is probably not great. Um, well, also the reason is that I make cats and I'm always wearing them. But I do think, you know, aside from church, you're okay to wear a hat inside. I think, you know, when the national anthem, you know, sometimes people choose to take their hats off then services, whether that's a church or a funeral service, there's certain like moments that respect is um, often shown by taking off your hat. Yeah. Well, how about personal style inspirations for you? And this can be outside of the hat. I, I assume it is. Uh, you are an incredibly stylish person from the head down. Um, so who, you know, men or women living or, or passed away uh, have inspired you? Um, you know, I think I, I guess people that inspire me that maybe necessarily wouldn't inspire my own personal style is seeing, you know, people tag us on Instagram, um, as social media has kind of developed as the brand developed, we get more user generated like tags. So I am always really 
excited to see how people style the hats. And it's particularly cool to see, you know, be surprised by something that maybe I would, wouldn't wear it that way. Um, so I guess that's what's really inspiring. Um, and then for me, it's sort of old school. Like I love references, like for my own personal style, um, you know, from the sixties, from the seventies, um, I guess the 1890s, a little bit goth, a little bit feminine. Um, so any Gigi, any names come to mind of, of iconic, um, hmm. Oh, I guess that means I'm a real individual that I can't think of anyone that I would like emulate their style, but, um, no, sorry. That's fine. <laughs> well, well, how about this as, as kind of a hackneyed, but, uh, but always interesting response. Um, the difference for you between fashion and style, what is it? So I think style, again, comes down to confidence. Um, it's about like really knowing yourself um, and knowing what looks good, wh what makes you feel good, whether that looks good on you or not. Um, so I guess I feel blessed that I maybe I don't have any references because mine's just very like um, reactive, um, maybe from references like movies or things. And then fashion, I think, is about feeling current and feeling on trend or being um, really new and, and bringing freshness into the conversation, I guess, would be the difference, which, like, I think, you know, could be tweaked because I think that with fashion comes a lot of in season and out of season, which leads back to a sort of waste conversation versus style, which is more investment pieces. True, true. Well, and, and recently over the last decade, the at least in the traditional fashion cycle and commercial cycle, we've seen not so much a bifurcated men's fashion and women's fashion. We have seen kind of a unisex offering um, or women kind of moving over to tailored clothing and, and, and perhaps even buying from a menswear designer designs that were intended for men and vice versa. Totally. Uh, with the hat, that, that must be sort of easier to see and there's less sort of pure signifiers of, of some gender intended element with, with what you make. But what are your thoughts on that? And do you deliberately, do you have, you know, hats that you feel are, are purely for men, purely for women, or are they all fluid? I, you know, I think we're well past that. Hopefully, um, you know, I know that we are here. Um, not to say that there's anything wrong for people that don't have that kind of fluidity, um, but we no longer have women's, men's on the website um, because I just think it's limiting. Um, not that... It, it, it just, it's just limiting. And I think that whatever makes people feel good, um, they should absolutely wear. Um, and we kind of have sizing across the board. At one point we were offering men's and women's specifically from a sizing perspective, because there is a difference in general head size trends, but now we're pretty much across the website. I do think we advise if you're a man or a woman, this is maybe where you would sit. Um, typically for a medium, if you didn't really know your size, but we just offer extra small through, through extra large so that 
we could accommodate as many people as possible. Well, are there brands that, um, whether it's from a design perspective or, or you know, back to craft from a, a locally source and, and use of local craft perspective, that's a mouthful, um, that you admire or, or you know, uh, inspire you in any way? Yeah, you know, um, absolutely. So I do think, you know, it's one thing, I guess, to be inspired for personal style. It's one thing to just be inspired by people and what they're doing and like the chain, the, the gorgeous aesthetic that they've established for themselves. And I think that, you know, um, some of the brands that we have, you know, involved in closely crafted are just doing incredible things. Um, Brandon Maxwell has, you know, really been a force of, of New York and crafts things here that are so stunning and so impeccably made and, you know, catered to different body types. And you have Maxwell from Maxwell Osborne and his new project in Only Child, which is all from dead stock materials. And there's a ton of gender fluidity in his clothing and in his accessories. And we had the opportunity to collaborate on a hat together. And then you have Alexandra O'Neill from Mercarian, who's doing just the most gorgeous, structured and, and beautiful dresses with gorgeous and, and lively prints. And, um, you know, I wouldn't call these brands colleagues, but I would, I guess, call them colleagues in a way because we're all investing in local production. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really inspired by, by people that are are building businesses and, and doing it thoughtfully and beautifully. Well, maybe more on the industry. So collaborations. I mean, you can't swing a cowboy hat around and not, you know, sort of have five or six new weekly collaborations sort of um, announced. You you have had collaborations, but but few. What, what is your view of, of how the collaboration stands, you know, to inform on brand? And um, do you think that, that this moment where we tend to be somewhat awash in them is, is, is good or a little bit confusing for consumers? I think it's like very case by case. Some of them I find to be like when large European houses go together, it just seems, an un it seems unusual to me because you've spent, you know, decades trying to establish your own DNA, and then you're going to like mix it up together. And sort of, uh, I, I just think that when um, collaborations are organic, and there's a mutual respect in both parties involved, and there's enough DNA of both that it, that is is visible, but the product is new and fresh and something that the client really has never seen before is, is when they hit. Um, and, you know, we have been, you know, we often get asked to collaborate because we are in such a niche category. So people know, you know, that we make hats. And so we're often asked to collaborate because it's often something that people don't produce in-house. Influencers as sort of a related topic and, you know, the economy of influencers and how important they have become to, to many brand stories. Uh, really same question. How do you feel about the use of influencers? Uh, how do you use them yourself? And um, good, bad, or just downright confusing for consumers? 
So, you know, I do think that influencers have consumer touch points. And I think that the more consumer touch points that feel organic to your brand, the more audience that you build. Um, for us, we never felt that um, influencers were something that were high on our priority list when it came to marketing. Um, it just has to be and we've, tr we've tried, but it just really has to be organic. It has to be people that are excited about you. And some of our biggest advocates and biggest allies are celebrities and, you know, bloggers and boldface names that love our product enough that they buy it. Yeah. yeah. And no, I've noticed that. I mean, you know? you've, got, you've got a real role of a-list celebrities that that wear your hats and as we've already discussed i mean hat wearing is 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 not common still not common it's not uh, we're not in an era where everybody is wearing a hat and um it's a testament to that but it's also a testament that they buy them as opposed to you know they're gifted and they uh, hashtag Gigi is awesome or whatever <laughs> it might be on instagram yeah use code 10 at checkout use code <laughs> laws of style at checkout <laughs> Well, Gigi, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for coming in and, and enjoying this, this beautiful summer storm with me. Um, any last parting words uh, before, before I let you go? My last parting words is for those of you who have been wondering in the audio what the little like rumbling noise is, is that my studio is in two bridges and I'm in between the Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge, which is a very hip neighborhood of downtown Manhattan. But with it comes a natural cityscape noise. So I appreciate you bearing with me on that front too. I knew what that noise was and you and, your, <laughs> you and your husband, I mean, visiting you guys is such a treat and such a pleasure to, to see the way that you work and the environment that you work in. It is, um, it is a lot of what Closely Crafted is, is about and supports. And so I think um, that, but that is good context. I heard a lot of that and I knew exactly what it was. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. And um, until next time, bye now. Thank you. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.